Moving over to a different mic. That's much better. Welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. I'm tired. It's Friday, September 29th, 2017. That was Tori Amos with uh, Up the Creek. Somebody recommended that song, so thank you very much uh, for recommending that. And trigger warning, this is a news and current events program, so we're talking about what's happening in the world, and there's just terrible things happening. And I'll do my best to talk a little bit about it perhaps provide i don't know to be honest there where to even start there's natural disasters there's human-made disasters and a lot of them are tied together due to humans behavior and first of all i want to just acknowledge people out there doing a lot of awesome work and people surviving in this world because I feel that's not really said very much. It's this kind of day-to-day trying to get through to do X, Y, and Z to survive. And there's a lot of people on top of that who go above and beyond. And there's too many people to name. 
and I want to just put all the love out there for everybody who is doing what they can. And a lot of that is just even existing in a world that's so hostile and so unjust. And I want to really name that and put that out there. So for everyone who's, who's out there living under these circumstances, um, I congratulate you and I'm sending you compassion and love. And maybe that sounds empty. I know there's that idea, actions and not words. And at the same time, this is a radio program. So that's all we can do here. And I do want to just offer love and support to everyone who's listening and recognizing that things are things are messed up and things have been messed up for a long time. So also wanting to acknowledge that a lot of this is nothing new. It's not like things suddenly got bad. This show's been going on for a while, a few years, and it didn't start off with me being like, everything's great. I'm going to report on the news and everything's fantastic. It's no, things are, things are messed up. There's systemic problems. And I think that's where the root of it is. When we talk about state violence, that's the root of it. When the state gets away with anything they want. And then people mimic that behavior. When the media lies on their behalf. How can we expect to live in a a just society when the people who are supposedly making the rules and supposedly looking out for us are the ones causing harm? Uh, It's kind of difficult to have faith in the system. And we need to find alternatives and build and create alternatives. And what does that look like? Community resistance, community resilience, communities looking out for each other, taking care of each other. How do we create that so then... When what this is crumbles, we have something to go towards. I would like that very much, and I know a lot of other folks would as well. I'll read a few articles today and playing some music. Thank you very much for all the suggestions folks made of uplifting music. We'll be playing some music as well. And I also was going to play a um, a podcast um, that uh, Sonia Renee Taylor recommended, and I highly, highly recommend it. I recommend it so much, I'm going to play it, because it's the kind of journalism that I... I don't see myself as a journalist. I do see myself as someone who wants to put the word out there as to what's happening and provide that, uh, just provide that space for it. And uh, this person, Al Letson, did just do an incredible job with this um, podcast uh, talking about the, what happened in Berkeley. Uh, And that's opening up a whole, there's so, okay. I'm going to breathe. I actually meditated for 20 minutes this morning. Can you tell? Can you tell that I'm not, like, punching things yet? So Al Letson did this incredible podcast I'm going to play on the show a little bit later. And just speaking with with folks who were involved in one of the more recent protests in Berkeley, and this was the one on August 27th, and really speaking with people in depth. And I commend people like this who are able to, to speak to people and to go in and ask questions. And I, I feel like I come in... I definitely have my own biases, and I also feel like there's certain people I just refuse, like I cannot engage with, people who I feel are so behind this ideology of wanting me dead, it's really hard for me to engage with them. And people will make up a lot of uh, reasons and justifications to say, oh, I'm not so bad, even though this is kind of what they're, what they're angling towards. And there's been a number of conversations even online, just the people who refuse to acknowledge what's happening and refuse to acknowledge the history of this country. And perhaps they've been taught an an alternate history that's not really true. They've been taught this idea that things are okay the way they are. And if you question them, that that you're wrong. Meanwhile, millions of people would disagree. (sighs) 
So I appreciate the folks who can go out there and really engage and really understand what's happening. And that's what this podcast is from. And it's from revealnews.org. And uh, the title is A Street Fight, A New Wave of Political Violence. And it's really talking about um, anti-fascists and how, you know, we're still getting this. People are still looking at us as if we're doing something wrong when, in fact, we are defending people. And I want to include myself in that, in that the, the, the anti-fascist we, um, if you are against fascism, you're an anti-fascist. It's that simple. And I wish a lot of people in politics would understand that. I wish a lot of people not in politics would also understand that. So we'll be playing this, this podcast later. And I'll be reading a few articles as well. There also have been a number of, I said it before on the show, but fuck ICE. Fuck the ICE agents. Uh, there are hundreds of people arrested in sanctuary cities, including Los Angeles. I heard 50 people in San Francisco. I don't have the specific details on that, but just I have anger. <laughs> I have a lot of fucking anger. You're separating people from their families. I don't see how that's helping anyone. Maybe the show will be less about news and more about rage. It's called the, <laughs> the Rage Review. What am I angry at? Or what are we angry at this week? Because I know, again, I know I'm not alone. And there's so many things to be angry at. And folks wanting to send aid to Puerto Rico, and part of that was there was a... There was like the Jones Act, there was like an, an element or one of the the pieces of the, the Jones Act said that like foreign people cannot send goods there because it's all about fucking capitalism and just bullshit. So then a lot of people spoke up and were like, no, you, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico needs, needs aid, hello. And now that's allowed, but they're saying now that folks there will have to pay but pay them back for the aid it's obscene um yeah so these are some negative stories right i know there's some positive things out there um all i can think about are the negative things i can think of another trans person who was murdered um there is another uh, i need to look up the specifics so i don't want to talk about it too much but more homophobia happening and there's another country where folks are being rounded up um, hmm. there's the person who won the Senate or is in the running to be a Senator from Alabama. Who's this guy named Roy Moore. Who's like just outright fucking homophobic. Like really like, I mean, not, I mean, I can't even speak about him. Go ahead and read about him if you want to get angry, but I'm ready for a group of queer folks to really just, empower ourselves and to make sure people like this do not have a have a voice in politics someone who really wants us dead and locked up and or dead and or fired uh no they should not have a a place to speak they should not (sighs) should i play more music with that would that lift the mood i feel a lot of also what's happening is just witnessing and hearing what people are going through and there seems to be just so many folks who are going through a really difficult time right now. So I also want to acknowledge that. And all we can do is be there for each other and, and work to get through this and also just to stop the people in positions of power from doing what they're doing. I'm kind of surprised that more, I know a lot of people are doing a lot of work, so I shouldn't say that I'm Surprise, less hasn't been done. I just wish the folks... This is for maybe for the folks out there who are not engaged in any sort of, sort of way at all. Maybe for the folks who um, 
who don't necessarily feel like any change has been happening, or maybe if you can walk the streets and feel safe, maybe, or people who have extra resources, these are the folks, or the folks who are just not being engaged at all. I really, we can't do this alone. You got to help out. You got to. Show up. Go to a rally if you have resources. Donate, share, spread the word. If you if you hear someone say something that's unjust and not true online, even jump in. There's, I mean, people misspreading, misspreading, people spreading misinformation out there is a problem. That's also why we're at where we're at is that people don't have a sense of history, and they're just letting people get away with murder. Oh, I've depressed myself, and it's only twelve thirteen. I don't think that's a record exactly. <sighs> I'm going to play some music and then I'm going to put on the, the podcast I mentioned. And uh, again, just listen. It's really well done and I really, really appreciate it. And in the meantime, perhaps I'll find a happy story. Actually, well, there's another story that's, that's out there. It's uh, Women Aren't Nags Were Just Fed Up. And that's an article that's in Bazaar. And it's talking about emotional labor. And I think a lot of us can relate to it where people provide emotional labor all the time and it's not compensated for. And much like other work, maybe that's considered domestic. Uh, people just are not, yeah, they're not, uh, what's the word? It's, it's people, there's, the word's kind of gone for it. Uh, people are not, not even necessarily appreciated for it, just, uh, you would think with me not smoking pot anymore that, my memory would come back and maybe I'm just totally overwhelmed by everything that my vocabulary is like either decreasing or it's, I, there's so many things in my mind right now. That's hard for me to find the correct words I want to use. <sighs> Compensated. I couldn't think of the word compensation. And that's a summary of 2017. People aren't compensated for their emotional labor. And that's something else that needs to be discussed. And folks don't even realize when people are doing the work that they should be compensated for it. Okay, there's that. I'm going to play some music because that's going to make everything better. Just kidding, it won't. But it'll be a nice uh, change of pace for a bit. And then I'll put on this new podcast. And maybe um, then we'll start off with with something new. So this is a, another song that folks recommended, OK Go plus Pilo Bolas with All Is Not Lost.
Welcome back. There we go. That was okay go. With all is not lost. And just checking in here. And okay, as promised. I didn't promise, but the next thing I'm gonna be playing is great. So again, it's a podcast, um, and this was uh, conducted by uh, Al Letson, uh, who's the host of uh, who's the host of this. And you can find it on RevealNews.org. And if you go to uh, RevealNews.org, uh, the title is Street Fight, A New Wave of Political Violence. And it came out on September 23rd, 2017. And you can listen to it there as well as share it. It's also on iTunes. And you can uh, find out a little bit there. I'm going to read the description here. Uh, since 45's inauguration, Americans have increasingly torn, turned to the streets to share opinions about the president and his policies. These tensions reached a boiling point last month as violent confrontations rocked Charlottesville, Virginia. There are more clashes le weeks later in Berkeley, California, when members of the anti-fascist movement, or Antifa, attacked several right-wing activists. A team of our reporters was on ground covering the event, literally on the ground, in host Al Litson's case. Witnessing one such attack, he dove on top of a far-right activist to shield him from blows. Who exactly was to blame? The activists on the left claimed their actions were appropriate retaliation for the death of Heather Heyer, allegedly murdered weeks later by a white supremacist in Charlottesville, which is, I would say, but it's not alleged that she was. Uh, meanwhile, the right said that the Antifa activists, I don't even fucking, we're not even listening to what the fucking right has to say, because they are, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to play this, uh, I'm just going to play this, and listen, and then I'll be back afterwards, and I will be much more together. Hey folks, this is Al Letson, and before we get started, I wanted to tell you about something we're doing on today's show that will give you something extra while you're listening. That's right, extra Al Letson just for you. So here's how it works. During the show, I'll give you shout-outs so you can text us to see some stuff you're hearing about. It might be photos of the people in the story or a link to a video. You get the idea. Okay, let's try it out. Get your phone out. I'll wait. Waiting for it. Waiting for it. And here we go. Text the word video to this number, 202-873-8325. Again, that's video. Text it to 202-873-8325. Once you do that, you'll see a video with yours truly. It kind of went viral and captures a scene that we talk about throughout the show. You don't want to miss it. Seriously, that's video, 202-873-8325. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. A few weeks ago, I was covering protests in downtown Berkeley. No KKK, no fascist USA. Thousands of people marching through the streets to demonstrate against a planned right-wing rally. It was a beautiful day, the sky was clear, kids with signs walked next to their parents, protesters danced and sang on an impromptu stage. It felt like a typical Berkeley protest, pretty peaceful, until it wasn't. Joey! Nazis out of Berkeley! Nazis out of Berkeley! Nazis out of Berkeley! I'm here in peace. You came to Berkeley to get all this attention, but the people ain't gonna allow you to have it! You guys ain't working! I was following a crowd of people who were yelling at some right-wing activists and chasing them away. Now, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a middle-aged man with a video camera being attacked. Oh, 
first, like the first blow hit me on the head and then it clicked. It's like, oh no, this is not going to be good. And then I, I remember getting hit a couple more times in the head and like people forcing me down. And then it was like, I just remember feeling the impact. Five people dressed in black with masks on their faces brutally beat the man to the ground. They kicked, punched, and hit him with poles while he lay there in the fetal position. I realized that I was in serious trouble, but I think even as they were, as they were pummeling me and I was going down, like it was going through my head, it's like, I can't believe, I can't believe this is actually happening to me. I mean, I knew, I knew there was a risk. All of this happened so quickly. I didn't know who he was, what he'd done, or why they jumped him. But in that moment, I thought, they're going to kill him. Yeah, I, I was feeling everything, and I thought, this, you know, this is it. I'm going to die. It's like they don't seem to be wanting to let up, and nobody's around. So, and then I, like, I think I said a quick prayer, and I thought, I hope this is quick because this really hurts, and I don't want this to go on another five minutes. When I saw what was happening, I did something kind of crazy. I didn't really think about it, I just reacted. I ran over to help him. I pushed someone out of the way and dropped on top of the man, shielding him with my body. Time seemed to slow in that moment. I braced myself for a beating that never came. Others came over to break up the fight, the mob moved on. After that, I don't remember what happened, but. Other reporters were rolling video and the scene of me, a black journalist protecting a white right-wing activist, went viral. When it was over, I was sitting on the curb of the street, adrenaline pumping through my blood, fog from a smoke grenade clouding my eyes, a crowd moving around me, and I wondered, how do we get here? Today, we're going to peel back the layers and find out why all these people converged at that one moment at one rally, at one fight in Berkeley, and see how it connects to protests all over America. We're gonna do it through the people who were involved in that fight, from the man who planned a right-wing rally that weekend. I'm pretty happy about the way the weekend went. It was pretty successful in terms of our goals. To the man I protected from that attack. And I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, you didn't know who I was. You know, for all I knew, you might have figured I was a, a Nazi. To one of the guys in the crew that carried out the attack, he tells me that beatdown was anything but random. Number one, his name is Keith Campbell, the man that you jumped on and saved. And he owes you a lot. I mean, he should be giving, paying you a lot of money because uh, he got off with a lot less than he deserves. What does he mean by that? I'm going to talk to him in a minute, but first, I wanted to bring in Reveal's Will Carlos, who's been reporting on the rise of right-wing groups and the anti-fascist or Antifa movement that has emerged to confront them. And Will, let's start with the man who said that he helped plan the beating at the rally. He says he's a member of Antifa, and you'd actually been interviewing him for weeks before the rally. So tell me, who is he? 
Well, we don't really know exactly who he is. He won't give us his name. We only know him by Dominic, but he's a an activist from the Bay Area. He lives in Oakland. Uh, he says he's been fighting Nazis for 20 years. He used to be in a group called the Anti-Racist Action. Uh, he identifies as an anarchist, and he's essentially a member of the militant wing of the Bay Area Antifa, which has been building up over the last year or so. There's been a lot of talk about Antifa recently in the media. President Trump has called them out. Now, that's quite a change for a small band of anarchists. That's right. And what we've seen is is Antifa really grow over, over the last year or so. But this is a movement that stretches right the way back to the 1920s and 1930s in Europe and that largely arrived in the U.S. in about the sort of late 1980s. And that's actually where Dominic got his start. Um, they, they started by kind of outing neo-Nazis, mainly in the punk music scene, uh, also going to clubs, music clubs, where, where racist bands wanted to play and, and expose them to them. What this group has kind of turned into these days is a collection of, uh, most of them are anarchists, and they're all about basically shutting down hate speech. Their idea is that hate speech is not free speech. And so if people want to come and be racist and say racist things and hurtful things, then they see their role as kind of going in and shutting those people down and not letting them into their community. I think for a long time, more mainstream progressives kept people like Dominic at arm's length. But as you and I saw at the Berkeley rally, something has definitely changed. Yeah, you're right. I think I think the violence at the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, and remember that was just two weeks earlier, and especially the death of Heather Heyer, that had really changed the view towards Antifa. And that was most evident, I think, in the moment in Berkeley when, when the the more militant protesters joined the main crowd. So you had this very diverse crowd of protesters from young people to, to older people, sort of more moderate groups. And then I actually got a message from Dominic and he says, we're coming around the corner and here they come. And there's about 200 of them marching in what they call a black block formation, which is these people dressed head to toe in black, marching in a very tight unit, banging on their shields. and. The main protesters were not scared of these guys. They were welcoming. They high-fived them. They were shouting, you know, give it up for the black bloc. Like, here come these people. And the idea was that they were there to protect them, to provide security. This is a coordinated thing, folks. So just hang with us. We are unified in our politics of anti-fascism, confronting white supremacy. Welcome, black bloc. It turns out that Dominic and his crew weren't just there to provide defense. They also planned to go on the offensive. They had a hit list of several right-wing activists. We have a copy of that hit list. It's a color flyer with the headline, Know You're Nazi. To check it out, text hit list to that number we gave you before. In case you missed it, it's 202-873-8325. If any of those people showed up, Dominic was prepared to go after them. A couple days after the rally, we asked Dominic to come into the studio. He showed up, and I have to admit, he's a pretty intimidating dude. He's in great shape. His body is built like a boxer, and he eats like one, too. Yeah, hard-boiled eggs, tuna fish, crackers, protein bars, oranges, muscle milk. I'd say that's a workout <laughs> diet. <laughs> as much protein as I can get. Dominic says they extricated three people the day of the protest, meaning they physically removed them. He was still pretty mad at me for stepping in and protecting Keith Campbell. He says they were targeting Keith for a reason. 
really I felt like you were standing in the way of a community response. They came for a fight. The community, through their representatives and all these organizations, mandated us to be the security for that and to protect them, to be the first line of defense and also to extricate those that would be wish to do them harm or to cause a scene or to, to rile them up. There was no regrets. We have no regrets. The only regret I have is that I didn't pull you off so we could finish on him. And, and I say that in, in the hopes that when he gets up, if whatever damage it is or if he has to go to the hospital, that maybe he'll reevaluate what he's dedicated his life to as a 50-some-year-old man. Maybe he'll say, is this worth it to me, this movement? That Am I willing to give uh, my, my bones and my life to a movement that, that these people are calling a fascist movement? I'm willing to give my life for the anti-fascist movement. Is he willing to give his for the fascist one? I was at the rally, and I would say like there were several... Um, Trump supporters here and there, but you're talking about like three individuals. So it's like 200 of you against three. That seems like really unequal odds. The reason why the violence was only those three incidents was because there was overwhelming numbers. If there were overwhelming numbers in Charlottesville, maybe Heather Heyer would still be alive today. We don't know. So the question that I have for you is what does defense mean to you? Because defense to me means that you are standing in the perimeter and you are protecting people behind you. But if a guy is there with a camera and he doesn't have a weapon, running after and chasing him seems like offense to me. Sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a community it, self-defense. It's not uh, just when the KKK rides into town with torches. That's when we organize and come together to respond. We respond beforehand and we organize beforehand. So that means people that are known fascists are known to um, attack us or, or organize these fascist rallies that have led to people being murdered. But the point is that you've got people in that movement around the periphery that are disaffected, uh, white men or don't have a job and, and need someone to blame, just like people needed someone to blame in the 30s in Germany. So I'm saying uh, if this man, specifically Keith Campbell, now goes and kills someone, that, that you have to live with that. I don't have to live with that because I, I'm not the person behind him pulling the gun. You're saying that like your defensive stance also includes offense because it would have to be if that guy did not have a weapon, was not coming to attack you, all he was using was words, and you're saying that the way you defend your community is you go after and you get him because the path that he's taking could lead towards violence in the future or the path that he's taking has had violence in the past, but either way, you feel like your defensive stance is to go out and get him if he's in your vicinity. Uh, I'm saying we use his own words directly, which uh, he refers to, I want to whoop their ass. He references knives. He openly communicates with But he didn't have any of that. So, so, uh, so we're going to wait for him to have it? I don't know. Do That's it? the question I'm asking you. So I'm saying no. I'm saying, so I'm saying we break his legs now so that then maybe he'll consider the next time if it's worth it to him. Do you think that that deterrence is actually going to stop them, though? No. No, I don't. I think what's going to stop them is what really happened and what should be the high headlines of all the newspapers was that such a broad coalition of people came out to stand up against white supremacy and say that in this day and age, we stand up to, to, to people that, that espouse those ideologies. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You just said that you don't think that the deterrence is actually going to work. What's going to work is people gathering together. Right. So if that is what's working, then how is the violence working? Because you're saying that, like, you're going to break his legs. 
uh, hoping that it's a deterrent. But then when I asked you, you said, no, that's not the deterrent. The people are the deterrent. So, like, if if the violence isn't the actual deterrence, but the people is, why not concentrate on peacefully gathering everybody together and showing that strength? Yeah, that's true. I should have made it more clear. So, so, so violence is absolutely the last line of defense. That's the last thing that we ever want to do. And that's what I've been trying to say is that the organizing has been done and gone into that. That coalition building, that is the nonviolence. The fact that we had to extricate three people, that's just one aspect of what's more important, which was the coalition and these groups that came together that haven't been able to work together for years. Do you feel like your movement is a revolution? Uh, I'm a revolutionary, and uh, I believe in a, a, we absolutely need a revolutionary movement to actually get rid of institutional racism. At its root, a revolution and a revolutionary is uh, a dream for what's possible, right? Like you, you mm -hmm. have a dream, you have an idea. Like what is your dream? That um, we have a society that is communal, that uh, there's a free association, that is non-hierarchical, that uh, um, doesn't have classes, that um, doesn't have uh, one class of people lording over another, that um, isn't um, discriminatory based on sexual orientation or color or any of those other things. So uh, all that peace and hippie crap uh, of uh, egalitarianism in uh, communal, non-hierarchical structures. And you think that peace and hippie crap is going to happen through violence? Mm, no, I think that's a component of a winning strategy. The winning strategy is the coalition, and that's what we built. Um, and that's our strategy. Um, those that don't agree with it don't have to participate. And if the movement's really going to crush this new fascist era, it's going to be done by the coalition that was created. It's going to happen from the community building and recognizing that we're not just crazy anarchists that want to do property destruction or wanton violence or just a, a mob mentality just to beat people up. Keith Campbell was targeted. Those people were targeted. And what I saw when I saw him is I, I saw that image of that car plowing through those people. When I saw Keith Campbell that day, all I could think of was that car plowing into those people in Charlottesville. Again, that was Dominic. He's a member of Antifa. He won't share his name with us, not because he's ashamed of what he believes in, but because he doesn't want to get arrested. And he wasn't the only one at the rally thinking about Charlottesville. I think for many of us, it was a heightened sense that, wow, these folks are very serious about causing harm. Mike McBride is a pastor at the Way Church in Berkeley. He spoke at the rally from the back of a flatbed truck. He says on that day, social media was buzzing with rants from white supremacists threatening violence. So he told his parishioners to be on guard. We told them you cannot walk through your own city by yourself at all today. Because online there were people that were saying they were coming to stab and hurt people. Pastor Mike showed us a video he found on Twitter. Three 20-something white guys are driving around downtown Berkeley. It's just after the rally, and they're furious that their side got crushed. All I could think of was there needs to be a fucking war, well, we just, and these people need to be fucking destroyed. We need to form militias, guys. Get your guns. Days like these make me so sympathetic to that guy who drove the Dodge truck in that crowd. It's kind of hard to make out, but one of the guys is expressing sympathy for James Fields. The man, police say, drove a car into protesters in Charlottesville, killing Heather Heyer. 
we confirmed the video was real and the guys in it were at the rally. Now, Pastor Mike says it's that kind of rhetoric that's getting people to rally around Antifa. He says in the past that he was uncomfortable with Antifa's tactics like trashing store windows and attacking police. But it's different when white supremacists are coming into your neighborhood and you don't trust that the cops will protect you. We literally have 200 years of organized white supremacists <laughs> who have done harm to our communities and folks don't feel like their public presence requires some surveillance or tracking or following these people. We have some great photos from the Berkeley protests. They show how things went from peaceful to violent. To see them, text rally to that same number. So we saw where Antifa and their supporters are coming from. But what about their right-wing opponents? When we come back, we'll hear from the people who organized the rally in Charlottesville. Honestly, like, going up to, like, MSNBC and then them interviewing you and you saying, yeah, I actually think that we should kill every non-white on the planet, even if it's your true belief. That's not the objective of this rally. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. And welcome back to the Weekly Review. So I'm playing a podcast from Al Letson uh, called Street Fight, A New Wave of Political Violence. And folks can find this at revealnews.org. So we'll be playing, continuing that. And uh, right now I just wanted to give a brief interlude uh, that that's what you're hearing right now. So that's Al Letson. And again, you can find this at revealnews.org. Hey, everybody. As you can tell, today's show is really personal for me. After I got involved in the attack, you know, I wanted to root out what was going on in all these political protests and what it says about America. And now I'm going to bring that story to the stage in our first ever Reveal Live show. We'll bring you the story of what happened and how all the people you're hearing in today's episode ended up colliding in Berkeley. The event will be on November 1st in Chicago as part of a partnership with WBEZ and Third Coast. Tickets are limited, but you can get yours now by going to revealnews.org slash live. Again, that's revealnews.org slash live. Hope to see you there. And hey, while I have you, I want to take a minute to tell you about another podcast that I love. It's called Side Door. Side Door is a podcast that ventures behind the scenes of the Smithsonian. Tell stories about everything from solving a murder mystery 150 years in the making to an astronomer who transforms the night sky into a musical instrument. New episodes are released every other Wednesday. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you listen. And now, back to the show. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We started today's show looking at a single protest in the Bay Area because it's a microcosm of ideological clashes happening around the country. What's helping bring these people together is social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other platforms. Now, in the days before the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, this is what you could hear on Discord. We're going to have all white people, we're going to have Oath Keepers, uh, we're going to have, you know, tons of different types of people, um, every source of flavor of all right. It's an online platform originally created for gamers to talk and text with each other. Unite the Right organizers planned Charlottesville on Discord. Reveals Aaron Sankin got copies of the audio and text files from those online sessions from a media outlet called Unicorn Riot. 
on Discord, there was a server called Charlottesville 2.0, which was used by the organizers and participants in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville to communicate. So from what you saw, what would you say the goals of the rally's organizers were? In those logs, there was the audio of a conference call on the platform that was hosted by uh, a gentleman named Eli Mosley. Mosley played a lead role in organizing this event and was recently named as the new leader of a fairly prominent white nationalist group called Identity Europa. And in the call, you can hear Mosley very directly talking about his goals um, for the effort. The purpose of this is to gain sympathy for, you know, pro-white advocacy. So the idea of, like, basically being edgy for edgy's sake is just not something that you need to do. Honestly, like, going up to, like, MSNBC and then them interviewing you and you saying something is, like, yeah, I actually think that we should kill every non-white on the planet. Like, again, I don't necessarily, like... You know, have an issue with listening to that on a podcast or whatever. Um, but if you are going to do something like that, like just for the sake, like even if it's your true belief, like that's not the objective of this rally. What they wanted to do here was advocate for a narrative that portrayed their cause in a flattering light. But, you know, in this case, that cause was white supremacy. How did they think they could rebrand white supremacy into something more palatable to the mainstream? They expended a lot of effort making sure that they were putting on a really positive face for the cameras. Organizers said that KKK members would be turned away at the door if they showed up in their robe, their full robe and white hoods. They didn't say that KKK members were not welcome, but they did say they should not be wearing those obvious signs of the Klan. The second strategy, and I think this one is really crucial, was that they really wanted to draw a contrast between themselves and the counter-protesters. They were really obsessed with Antifa. The word Antifa appeared in these chat logs just over 700 times, and that's about the same frequency as the word white appeared. So they talked about Antifa constantly. And they believed that if Antifa responded to their peaceful protest with violence, the public looking on from the sidelines would naturally see them as the more reasonable party. At the August Charlottesville rally where things did get out of control, they were chanting blood and soil and you will not replace us. How does that mesh with the idea of them trying to play their white nationalism low key? There was a sense from the top that they were they were really trying to push this friendly face onto this ideology. But at the same time, like when you get all of these people there and they get all riled up and they get all excited, it's really hard for them to keep some of those uh, more controversial elements of their ideology obscured. You could see that on the chat, which was still going throughout the rally. You would see people talking about like just expressing disappointment that there were Nazi flags and Roman salutes. If they were so concerned about being named as responsible for violence, how did they react when one of the participants drove a car through a crowd of counter-protesters? People immediately started making jokes and turning the attack into memes that were mocking the people who were injured or killed. But the car attack meant that this entire event was a failure. They really wanted to be seen as the good guys here. And since the information about fields 
came out pretty quickly that he had Nazi sympathies and was a Trump supporter. You know, it's very hard to be seen as the good guys when your side is murdering innocent people. How does all of this connect to what we saw in the Bay Area protests a couple weeks later? The main through line connecting what happened in Charlottesville and what happened in the Bay Area, at least to my eyes, is this concept of provocation. Their goal was to get a lot of counter-protesters out there and hopefully those counter-protesters would, you know, embarrass themselves in the light of the, to the public at large, just by throwing punches and fighting and looking unhinged. That's Reveal's Aaron Sankin. I want to bring Will Carlos back into the conversation. Now, Will, we're going to hear from the guy who organized one of the right-wing rallies in the Bay Area that weekend. Uh, Tell me about him. Yeah, his name is Joey Gibson, and he lives in Vancouver, Washington, and he's really hard to categorize. He identifies as a Japanese-American. He says he's just a free speech advocate, and he founded a group called Patriot Prayer, which has been organizing rallies mainly on the West Coast, but in other places too. Uh, These rallies have often gotten violent. They sometimes have white supremacists and other racists showing up, so he's kind of gotten in with a bad crowd, although he says he's not a white supremacist himself. Uh, he's got he's got a background of being, I guess, he's an agitator. I mean, he gets out there and he kind of gets in people's faces and, and pokes them with a stick. And that's exactly what he was trying to do in San Francisco. Yeah, well, you also found out that Joey was one of the people on that Antifa hit list we heard about earlier. Now, I was there when Joey showed up at the rally in Berkeley. He's a 33-year-old guy with a shaved head and a trim beard. He says he went there holding up his hands to show he didn't want trouble. But to me, his body language was really aggressive. And it seemed like he was trying to rile up the left-wing protesters and get them to come after him. And that's exactly what happened. People started chasing him. Someone pepper sprayed him. He did eventually make it to a line of police officers for safety. Now, I spoke to him about that recently and asked him what was going through his mind at that time. I was scared. I was extremely afraid. You know what I mean? I knew we were going to take a beating. Why would you go over there if you knew you were going to get beat? I can't understand that unless you specifically wanted to get beat. It was to expose them for who they are. So your job then was to get them to take the bait and go after you. They could have made the right decision to not attack us. But yeah, it was up. We left it up to them. So you want them to look you, you want them to look bad. That's your goal. I want them to look how they really are, how they really feel on the inside. This is America. We have that right to be able to walk in there, especially with our hands up, and to not get assaulted. You know, we have a reporter here that's been doing some looking into all of this stuff with the far right and so forth. His name is Aaron Sankin, and he has a story about Charlottesville that the Unite the Right organizer, Jason Kessler, urged people to help bait Antifa into attacking the Proud Boys. How is that different from you trying to bait Antifa? You have to understand, Unite the Right is a justification to team up with extremists. That's totally different from what I'm doing. I'm trying to help justify people for moderates to come together. But Joey, you're using the exact same tactics as the white supremacists are using because they want to make Antifa look bad and you want to make Antifa look bad. Was that wrong of me though, to want to make Antifa look bad, but not look bad in a way where it's a lie. I just want them to be exposed. Do you think Antifa is as bad as white supremacists? Yes. 
not as a whole, but you can't fight hate with hate. You can't do it. And so when you have a bunch of hateful people, white supremacists, Antifa, they're extremists and they're just as bad. And they're, um, I think they're just as much of a threat to this nation. If you look at the numbers of fatalities within this country, white supremacists by far have killed way more people than anybody in Antifa has. Like, I don't think Antifa has a, a number count. Why does it have to be one or the other? Aren't they both bad? Do you think it's shocking that people come out to oppose Nazis and white supremacists? Uh, being a Nazi used to be a bad thing that everybody could agree on, like, it's bad. Yeah, oppose them. But people are using that, they're using that term Nazi so much that they're diluting it. And you know what I mean? That's the biggest problem. Go fight Nazis, fight real Nazis, fight racist, white supremacists, whatever. Go do your thing. But stop labeling everyone as white supremacists. Stop labeling everyone as Nazis. Like, it's, it's crazy. It's insane right now. But the problem is that so many people on the far right are associating with people who are Nazis, people who are against gays, who are against Muslims, who are against Jews, who are against African-Americans. So it's really hard to say that, you know, I'm going to march with this far right group that believe all these things and think that people aren't going to lump you in with those with those individuals. That's what real love is. We, we have real video footage of you at, uh, at a rally in Oregon where I guess you're doing security for these preachers. For your sin. Your sin of homosexuality. Your sin of being a transgender. Who are screaming at people about how they're going to go to hell because they're gay. Yeah, and that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Because I, not only do I not believe that, I don't believe gay people are, are better or less loved by God than straight people. So why'd you do it? Because they had done, uh, okay, I'll tell you why I did it. Here's what my justification was. So they had been there for me in the past in terms of um, trying to keep me safe in some really scary situations. And um, it, was, it was like a free speech thing. Do you understand how seeing a video like that could shape an opinion about who you are? Absolutely, 100%. Let me ask you this. Um, if I was to hold a rally in downtown Berkeley, I would not be attracting white supremacists to come to my rally. But how do you know that? Because I don't align with white supremacists. But either do I. But the white supremacists are coming to your rallies and supporting you. That's the point I'm trying to get to. Because there must be something in your message that they feel connects with what they believe. I don't think so. I think that they're, the thing that they're attracted to is, number one, people constantly say I'm racist and I'm a white supremacist. That's one problem. Okay, that does not help me. But the other thing, too, is, is it's, it's hatred for the left. So here, here's the thing, though, is that I think when the Antifa or when people on the left look at your movement, they see your association with Kyle Chapman. He is kind of the poster boy for that movement, that violent you know, white supremacist side of, of the movement. Whether you call it the white genocide or the war on whites, it's essentially the same thing. It's, it's a war on Western civilization. He advocates violence against Antifa. And so when they see your association with these things, of course people are going to say, well, if you're associated with it, then you must be a part of it. Kyle Chapman is probably one of the most misunderstood people. He's not, he's not a white supremacist. Um, he's not even, I mean, you can talk to him, but I, I don't even, he's not even a white nationalist. He is concerned about the way that whites are being treated. Okay. In this country right now, culturally, I mean, it's a fact, like, like 
I, I'm not I'm not a person that's gonna run around and say the whites are victims, okay? I don't I don't believe that. But it's I mean whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college. You know what I mean? There's there's a huge problem with the way whites are being Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. <laughs> hold on. Whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college? Yeah. That's that's totally untrue. It's tuition and state colleges. Yes, it is. It's totally true. That's totally untrue. Can I tell you why I know that that's untrue? Why? Because, like, I, I have a child that's black and I have a child that's white, and they're both going to be paying the same thing. Like, I know that for a fact. So they can't be—that's just not true. And I don't have a child that's biracial. I have a child that's white. So— I know for a fact that black people and white people are paying the same things. No, not in state colleges. I'm telling you, in state colleges, please l listen to me, man. Like, uh, uh, Joe. I had to pay more because I'm Asian. Joe. <laughs> I'm telling you, Joe, Asians pay the most. Joe, I'm telling you, my friend, that's not true. Well, why don't we, there's no point arguing about it. Just look it up. Just no, I don't, do, do some research on it. and I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you about it because I'm telling you the facts. And you are perpetuating something that isn't true. It's built on a myth that perpetuates the idea that white people are wholesale victims in the United States. I am telling you, as somebody, like I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter, but I'm also uh, a parent of a black and white child, that both of those children will be paying the same thing when they go to state college because my daughter is in state college now and my son is getting ready to go to state college. So I know this for a fact. I've, I've looked at it. I'm paying this. So I know for a fact. And I know for a fact that this is how it works throughout the entire United States. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And I have to do the research. But, you know, I have and maybe I was completely wrong. But, I mean, there's no point arguing it. I'm just saying that. Joey, I just keep going back to, I just keep going back to the idea that if we don't figure out how to back away from this cliff that we're on right now, we're all going to go over. Yeah. Both sides continue to push and push and push each other until the point when we get to that cliff, you're going to push each other off the cliff and the country's going to go with you. That's, I know, it's a legitimate concern. You know, that's why we're, I'm really, you know, there's, there's some major shifts going on. I know that that's hard for you to believe, but there's some major shifts going on in Patriot Prayer. And I, I don't disagree with you. I think you're right. Again, that was Joey Gibson, head of the right-wing group called Patriot Prayer. Our reporter, Will Carlos, is back with me. And, Will, it seems like that is a, um, I don't know, it feels like that resentment is an entry drug into white supremacy. Look, what Joey's saying is straight out of the white supremacist playbook in 2017. It's what the pinstripe Nazis are saying across the country. You don't hear in America these days very much that there's a big difference between the races or that, you know, black people uh, are somehow, you know, inferior to white people. Things have changed in terms of the way people talk about this. So what the white supremacists say now is they say that, you know, white people are under attack. They say that there's a white genocide going on and that white people are, you know, that they're facing all of these challenges from all different directions. So so he's certainly spinning some of the lines of some of the people who've been showing up at his protests. So well, we've heard that the goal for the organizers in both rallies in Charlottesville and in Berkeley was to make the Antifa look bad. 
it seems like that's worked. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I think you have to differentiate between the protesters who were actually there. So the more moderate, you know, leftists who are kind of out there protesting. I don't think the Antifa have changed in their minds at all. In fact, I think they've probably, uh, I think those people probably have a more positive view of Antifa because they were there and they know that it was largely a peaceful rally with a few isolated kind of scuffles. But if you look at the way this played out in the, in the, broader media context across the country, then yeah, I mean, there's been a big backlash against Antifa. Not only is President Trump talking about them, you've got the mayor of Berkeley immediately saying Antifa should be labeled as a as a gang. You've got Nancy Pelosi saying that they must be condemned. There's certainly been a big kind of PR backlash. But at the end of the day, you know, these Antifa guys, they don't care. I mean, they're not going to stop doing what they're doing because the PR has been spun against them. They say they don't care, but it looks like law enforcement might be targeting them. Yeah, and that, that is a concern. I mean, we've seen reports that the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is looking closely at these guys and has been for several months. And that's certainly at the top of the mind of a lot of people I'm talking to. I mean, let's put it this way. After my story came out on Antifa a couple of weeks ago, a few of the people who are quite happy to talk to me no longer answer my messages. That's Reveal's Will Carlos. He writes about extremist groups in our newsletter, The Hate Report, along with Aaron Sankin. You can subscribe to it by going to revealnews.org slash hate. So we've heard from the right-wing group and Antifa members. Next, I talk to the man who I protected from getting beat during the Berkeley protest. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. And you're listening to Mutiny Radio. This is Roman here with the Weekly Review. I cut the other microphone to work, so things are a little bit easier here now. We're listening to um, interviews from Al Letson, who was a journalist who was in Berkeley. And also, just a note that there were protests again this week in Berkeley. Haven't even gotten to that yet. Um, we will get to that a little bit. <sighs> Gonna breathe out. And uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in a little bit after the rest of this uh, interview. And again, you can find this if you go to revealnews.org, and the title is Street Fight, A New Wave of Political Violence, and these interviews are conducted by Al Letson. Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We're ending today's show where we started, in the middle of a fight. Stop! 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 We're putting so much emphasis on this one fight because it's telling us a lot about what's happening around the country, and not just with protests, but with America itself. The attack happened at a relatively peaceful gathering in Berkeley. Five members of Antifa were beating and kicking a man. Now, I was there reporting on the rally. I saw the fight and jumped in, putting my body between the man and his attackers. 
I didn't know who he was. But as we've heard, members of Antifa did. They told us they had targeted him for a reason. His name is Keith Campbell. He is a known fascist. He's been known not only to intimidate, he, we have screenshots of him uh, talking about knives. He encouraged people to come and fight. After the incident, people on social media said that I'd protected a white supremacist. So we called Keith up to find out who he was. I'm an artist, I'm a writer, amateur photographer. Um, I spend a lot of time writing and, and that's where I feel most at home. Keith is 54. He lives in the Bay Area with his family and likes to wear American flag t-shirts. He says he's a journalist for conservative websites, but Antifa members accuse him of using his camera to dox people. Doxing is when someone posts private information about you online, often with photos or videos. At the rally, Keith had his camera out and was filming the protest when he was attacked. You know, I think on the first hit to the head, I realized that I was in serious trouble. But I think even as they were, as they were pummeling me and I was going down, like it was going through my head, it's like, I can't believe... I can't believe this is actually happening to me. I mean, I knew, I knew there was a risk. And, you know, then later seeing, seeing the video. Stop! 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 Of what you did. And I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, you didn't know who I was. Um, you, a Nazi, because that's kind of how we're painted in the, in the media, and but but you still did that. I owe you my life, Keith. I'll be honest with you, buddy. Um, you know, I've been looking at your Twitter uh, feed, and there's a lot of things that I'm uncomfortable with. I actually interviewed uh, some Antifa people um, who were at the rally. The the person I spoke to, he says that you are on a hit list. I know. That they have a group of targets that they are going after. I know. And, and so their rationale for going after you is because they say that when you go to these rallies, you are there to primarily dox them, that you are there to tell people who they are, put all their information out. And, you know, a lot of things that I've seen online have said that for many months now, you've been harassing uh, a lot of the uh, people who are in the Antifa movement. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are about that? Yeah, sure. Um... In regards to, you know, the whole, the doxing thing, yeah, I know people are, are saying that I would dox him. And I've, I've never tried to, to unmask any Antifa, and I, you know, I would never try to unmask any Antifa. Do you think that the Antifa are on par with the white supremacists? Not as a whole, no, but I think there are people on the far left are probably equally as bad as the people on the far right. I don't think that's the largest amount of them, no, on I'm, either I, side. I guess what I'm saying is the moral equivalency, right? Like, do you think that white supremacy and people like Richard Spencer and uh, 
the the people that came out in Charlottesville, do you think that they equate with the Antifa? Because the Antifa primarily has risen to fight white supremacy. And white supremacy, you know, we can look at the model of Germany when Nazis were in power, you know, what that looks like. Millions of people yeah. die. And so the Antifa came, has come about to fight against that. So I guess my question is, is do you think those two things are equal? No. You know, I was concerned when um, Trump, when it looked like Trump might get first elected that um, a lot of bad people on the far right would come out of the woodwork and seek legitimacy or get legitimacy. And that kind of seems to have happened. Do you think the work that you've been doing, though, has 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 helped them? I mean, it's, it seems to be that you're supporting them. Certainly not my intention to support anybody on the far right, no. I know there's people who have been there when I, you know, I've been filming. There's obviously, you know, Charlottesville. Um, when you have large groups of people that gather, people are going to get in. And I think it's important that they be that cancer be excised out of the movement. But you're adding to it. I mean, I think if Richard Spencer was following you, all the tweets that you've put out, he would like. He would, he would click that little button with the heart and say, there we go, I'm good. He might until he found out what I really believed, that I completely disagree with him. But how would he know what you really believe because everything you put out lines up with he, what he believes? What, I, what I'm trying to get at, Keith, is, 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 is that we live in this culture where, um, where maybe there is a disconnect between the things that we put out in the world and who we actually are, but that disconnect has consequences. Yeah. You're right. I'm looking at a tweet that you said, Hey, Berkeley Antifa, you effing pussies. Accept the challenge. You're no good with your fists anyway. Uh, that was July 13th. On August 19th, this is before the event that happened, you got, uh, why don't you pussies come out to Berkeley and we'll talk about that. Um, all of those statements are provocation. You're, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. I, I don't think it's a, a, a long jump for me to go from reading these statements to seeing what happened to thinking that you went out there to stir it up. Yeah, um... Yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, I know I obviously said that stuff. I've In never... the tweets that you have here, I've got a, a, a bunch of them of you saying, you know, get the F out of America, Muslims, or renounce, uh, or renounce Islam. Uh, not in my country. If you follow Islam, you don't belong in the U.S. Uh, that effing religion is a cancer to the world and has no place in the West. If you follow Islam, you need to go where it's practiced, not in the U.S.A. So all of those things that you're saying there feed into the bigger ideas that Richard Spencer is pushing of a white ethnostate. And so do you understand what I'm saying? Like how those two things play yeah. together? No, I, no, I, I totally get it. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that, I think a, a white ethnostate would be horrible. And I don't think that people should be segregated at all. And it, it let me, let of... me ask you this. Um, you're, you're a member of the Oath Keepers and, and, you know, the Oath Keepers, uh, as an organization, they say that 
they're really like all about the Constitution. The reason why I bring that up, because the First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the freedom of religion. You know, so the part that I am uh, unsure of with you is that if you're an Oath Keeper, you believe in the Constitution, you believe in the freedom of speech, that's, that's a really important thing for you, correct? The, the freedom of speech. Yes. And so therefore, I'm curious if you believe in the First Amendment, the part where it talks about the guarantee of freedom of religion. Um, because you don't get to pick and choose if that's the case. You don't get to say like, oh, it's freedom of religion for people who are of Christian denomination. That's not in the document. You don't get to say like, oh, it's freedom of religion for everybody except Islam. Um, that's not in the document. You're right. Do you, do you have any regrets about that? Yeah, I do. I have, I have, uh, yeah, I have a lot of regrets about, um, you know, things that I've, I've said and, and I mean, who, who hasn't said stuff and later realized that they might've been wrong or at least shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, I think that's why it's good to talk to people who don't hold your beliefs. So you either learn that maybe your beliefs are correct and it strengthens you, or you learn that you're wrong, that you maybe you need to change or pivot and re-examine, re-examine the beliefs that you have or the things that you value. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not above changing or, you know, admitting I made mistakes and, and looking at things and, and looking at where I can, you know, change to become a, you know, a better or different person. Let me um, just say to you, man, that um, that when I saw you on that ground, it wasn't the first thing that didn't come to my mind was that oh, there's a white guy on the ground, and he may be an alt writer, he may be a uh, he may be somebody that doesn't want me in this country. Um, the first thing that I saw was a fellow American on the ground, and he needed help. And that's why I went and helped you, um, because you are a human being, and and I value your humanity. Um, and I would say that when I look at the the statements that you've made, and if I did the same thing, if I use the exact same reasoning, you might not be here today. I think you're right. Can you change, Keith? Yeah. Can you change the way you think and look at things? Of course, as long as I'm alive, yes, of course. Keith, I know uh, that this was not an easy conversation to have, and I really appreciate you um, taking the time out to talk. I knew it wouldn't be. I knew it wouldn't be an easy one, so it's all right. I knew. Keith Campbell told me he could change. Looking at his Twitter feed, he seems to have dialed back his anti-Islamic rhetoric, but he continues to agitate Antifa, calling them brainless, murderous thugs. Joey Gibson of Patriot Prayer told me there was a new direction for his organization, but he's still holding rallies where he says his goal is to make Antifa turn violent and look bad. As for Dominic, he didn't see any problems with his methods, and he told me he has no regrets. 
we had a whole team of reporters and producers working on today's show. Will Carlos, Trey Bundy, Aaron Sankin, Emily Harris, Stan Alcorn, Mawenda Hasey, Harriet Rowan, Scott Pham, Rachel DeLeon, Catherine Miskowski, Patrick Michaels, Eric Segarra, Emmanuel Martinez, Aubrey Aiden Bowie, and Kate Tellerico. They had help from editors Andy Donahue, Ziva Brandstetter, and Michael Corey. Michael Montgomery was our lead producer this week. Our lead sound designer and engineer is Jim Briggs. He had help from Catherine Raimondo and Kat Shuknit. Additional audio from Krista Rose. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, And remember, there is always more to the story. system
small man is so happy to work for the big man that all he can say is thank you.
There's a train a coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to ease who's a hunger. You don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. Yeah. Welcome back to the Weekly Review. Back here after... I'm going to move the microphones a little bit. I know I wanted to necessarily talk about what one is doing, but it's uh, things to hear if folks were able to see uh, video footage. It's things feel a little bit uh, out of place today, and perhaps that's interfering with things. Okay, a little bit better here. So that was a cover, of course, uh, of People Get Ready. And big thank you to Donetta for recommending that. I hadn't heard that version before. That was really nice. And the person singing that, uh, their name, as I scroll up here, is... Mm -mm -mm. Eva Cassidy. And... Before that, 
heard a song I had not heard before, so thank you to Finn for recommending it. And <laughs> you can see I'm slow today. A song called Big Man by Antibalos, and that was really good, so thank you for that. So folks, if you want to get involved in other ways or more ways or depending on what you're able to do or available to do, you can also check out facebook.com slash weeklyrev. I post more news articles there as well as petitions one can sign, places you can donate, and other things you can do from the comfort of your own home or wherever you are if you have internet access. So I just posted um, – there's another – a uh, place where folks can donate some funds to Puerto Rico. Um, another, I prefer supporting grassroots organizations and places that will give funds directly to the people and people who are on the ground working there as opposed to larger organizations where you don't necessarily have proof that the money is getting to the people. So wanting to give those folks uh, an added... Putting the word out. I'm awake. I'm here. I'm, I'm doing it okay. Today's, sometimes we have it, we show up as we're able, and that's exactly how I'm doing it today. I Maybe 40%, that's how I feel. Sometimes um, one is more sharp uh, or more quick. I'm, I'm showing up. I'm doing what I can. I'm sharing the information that I'm able to, and I hope you as listeners learn and or are motivated and or hear things today that inspire you. That's all That's all I hope to do here is to put the word out and to get folks thinking and to also just encourage people to act and recognizing a lot of folks already are. This is maybe for folks who are not doing so much. Um, it also just makes you feel good. It's another thing to uh, be able to help other folks. It's If we all did that more often, if that's like the majority of our lives were spent helping other people, imagine what that would look like. So as I am just taking a moment here to open up the page I'm getting to, I'm going to share some more information for ways to help out. It's taking a while, though. We're, we're getting there, slowly but surely. Again, you can go to facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And if you like what you're hearing, if you want to support the show, we could definitely use some more sponsors. Big thank you to everyone out there who is sponsoring the show and um, helping us with our rental fees. We're almost at our goal. We're trying to raise enough funds so that we can pay for the rental space every month. That would be awesome. If you go to patreon.com slash weekly rev, even a dollar a month, pledging a dollar a month would be super helpful. So if enough folks do that, then that would be great. So if you're listening and say, hey, I have a dollar a month I can I can share, that would be great. And also just spread the word too. That's also very helpful. You can also like our Facebook, quote unquote, like our Facebook page, both in reality and through liking. And that is at facebook.com slash weekly rev. One campaign you can sign we've just posted is Justice for Keegan. And I'm going to read about that. And that was from uh, um, going to breathe. It's, Super frustrating hearing about so much that's happening. Um, so you can find this campaign there. And I'm going to be reading. I am going to read <laughs> the content here and why you should sign this petition. Um, why is this important? My 22-year-old son, Keegan Von Roberts, was murdered by our racist neighbor, Michael Santani, three months ago. And the police have done nothing. We need your help to bring forth charges. Michael, an aspiring police officer deliberately left his home on July 20th, 2017 to taunt and harm my son. 
but the police are refusing to make an arrest and no charges have been filed. The investigation into Keegan's death is entering into the third month and we have we still have no answers and no justice. Keegan's father, wife, daughter, and I have been working tirelessly with the father of Jordan Davis, Jacksonville Community Action Committee, and other local groups to organize community vigils, rallies, and meetings with Florida State Attorney Melissa Nelson calling for transparency and accountability, but our cries are ignored. We need your help to amplify our demand. Will you stand with Keegan's mom, wife, daughter, and community to demand Florida State Attorney Melissa Nelson bring charges against Michael Santani? for the death of Keegan Von Roberts. So you can go ahead, if you could check out the facebook.com slash weekly rev page, this is, we just shared this um, there. They're trying to get to 2,000 signatures. Right now they have 1,595. You can sign and share, please do, at the very least, uh, sign and share this campaign. And also below that, there is another um, organization, um, folks on the ground in Puerto Rico, where you can support um, also please do um, donate if you're able and also spread the word it's a sustained relief for Puerto Rico and uh, so this is a, a GoFundMe and yeah you can go ahead and um, share that um, there they have some photos and uh, a few other updates um, of folks who are going there on the ground to directly support people. So please do that as well. And again, these are simple things to, at the very least, getting the word out, spreading the information of ways to help people. And again, through the grassroots level, that's where change really happens, is through people helping people. <sighs> Sigh. Sigh. Okay. Uh, so there's a, an article in SF Weekly I mentioned earlier about arrests, uh, fuck ICE. <laughs> I mean, all these people who are agents of the state who are separating people and harming people, fuck them. I know that's not a very constructive thing, uh, but I do want to release my anger and my dissatisfaction and frustration that this is the world that we're living in. And there are people who their, their jobs is to separate people and to deport people. And I think that's really fucked up. So that's my professional opinion. This is also, you know, that's my own, that's my standpoint, and um, really super frustrated about it. And SF Weekly uh, today has an article. So they have arrested uh, 27 people in Santa Clara, San Francisco, and they there's a four-day sweep, and there are folks from Mexico, El Salvador, and Honduras. And also, one needs to recognize when we're talking about this. Um, <laughs> I personally have the opinion that borders are imaginary and this idea that folks come in come in and create their own laws and set up the using violence just to kind of take over land and then making laws about who can or cannot be here based on filling out fucking paperwork and stupid bureaucracy making laws. I mean, there's some folks here who are who are documented who are causing harm. Like why aren't we deporting white supremacists? Why aren't we deporting 45 and his entire family? Why aren't we deporting uh, Dick Cheney? Why aren't we deporting Karl Rove? Why aren't we deporting warmongers? If we're going to talk about making this country safe and secure, how about these white men in suits who are causing harm? How about the killer cops out there? They're the ones who I'm personally afraid of. They're the ones who are causing harm. I personally don't care what someone's documentation is. I, I, it's about behavior for me. And if someone is out there in a position of power causing harm, maybe they're the ones that we should be protected from. Think about that. 
Okay. With that, I'm going to play some music because I am frustrated and livid and angry. And also, I saw the phone rang earlier and I was unable to get it. But please do, if you have information, questions, comments, anything you'd like to talk about, the lines are open. We're at 415-550-0511. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Many stones to form an art, singly none, singly none. And by union what we will can be accomplished till drops of water turn a mill, singly none, singly none. Step by step the longest march can be one, can be one, many stones to form an arch, singly none, singly none, and by union what we will can be accomplished if drops of water turn a mill, singly none, singly none. Step by step, the longest march can be won, can be won. Many stones to form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished in drops of water. Singly none, singly none, singly none, singly none, singly none. Hold on. Got my hand. 
freedom power Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now Keep your eyes on the prize Hold on Hold on Hold on Keep your eyes on the prize Hold on Hold on Hold on Welcome back to the weekly review. Still a bit, sitting a bit askew here. Just how it happens sometimes. Thanks to Clay for the recommendation for Step Up by Sweet Honey in the Rock. And then after that, we heard Mavis Staples with Eyes on the Prize. Um, yeah, thanks everyone for recommending some really good music to play. And it's super helpful here. <laughs> it's a DIY show. So we hear some technical things in the background, and that's that's all right. That's where we're at. I'm going to promote an upcoming event that hopefully some folks can come to if you are not familiar. And also that was uh, Alan for recommending Eyes on the Prize. So thank you, Alan, for that. Okay, what's happening next? What are other things that people can do uh, to... I don't know, take part in defending our communities? Well, if you're in the Bay Area, one thing you can do is on Saturday, October 7th, there's a public forum called Defend Our Spaces, Know Your Enemy, round two. And this is happening, again, Saturday, October 7th, um, from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Oakland Peace Center, and that's at 111 Fairmont Avenue in Oakland. And this is hosted by Community Ready Corps, an awesome organization, super cool. So let's read the details. <laughs> Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, all right, so this, uh, not this Saturday, but a week from Saturday, 
We're back for another intro to White Nationalism Past, Present, and Future Workshop. If you missed the first one, here this is your chance to get caught up and plugged into anti-fascist organizing work. Community Ready Corps, CRC, is organizing to protect black spaces and communities from racist intimidation, harassment, and violence, and to provide security and self-defense trainings. Emboldened by the election of 45, white nationalists with genocidal aspirations against black people, Muslims, and immigrants are organizing in the Bay Area. Throughout the history of our country, white racial terrorist and paramilitary organizations have been used as surrogate for the state, as surrogates for the state, a disciplinary force to keep black people and other marginalized groups in line. The alt-right is just a rebranding of those same groups, but their intentionality, but th- uh, their but their intentionality, confusing, and contradictory messaging is designed to trip you up. The pre- this presentation grows out of a deep and comprehensive understanding of white supremacy and white nationalism designed to help you make sense of the alt-right no matter what your current level of knowledge. Who are the organizations and individuals making up the alt-right? Where did they come from? What do they believe? How has their movement picked up so much steam? What did Berkeley mean for the alt-right and where do we go from here? Join CRC and CRC Allies and Accomplices for a community teach-in about the alt-right and how you can participate in resistance uh, to their white nationalist agenda. And you can also donate to the Defend Black Spaces Fund, and that's at GoFundMe slash defend-black-spaces. And this event is also on Facebook, and I'm also going to share this on our Facebook page. So in uh, hopefully less than a minute, depending on how fast technology works here. Um, uh, you can check out this event here on our Facebook page. Uh, and you can read this information yourself and you can share it with folks and you can come through. And again, this is happening on Saturday, October 7th from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Oakland Peace Center. So again, another way of standing up to this is becoming informed, understanding the context of what's happening, having information about it, and also networking with other folks and building community and building solidarity. So that is another way. There's diversity tactics. We talk about that a lot. So there's a lot of ways you can show up and uh, literally show up and yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to multitask here. And again, you can't exactly see what's happening, but I'm trying to merely share this event as I am talking about it and holding a microphone in my hand because that's where I'm at. Cool. All right. So we're going to go, actually, I'm going to read an article because I haven't done that yet today. Uh, I've read a little bit, but we've got, uh, we got some time. And also um, this week and next week, uh, Women's Magazine will be off as well as Common Thread Collective. Also sending some healing vibes out to Diamond Dave. Um, And also just everyone out there who is, Everyone sending human. What? Okay, it's the end of the program. I the coffee did not seem to work, and that's okay. We're providing information. So this is this article is called "Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up." And this is from Bazaar, um, written by Gemma Hartley. And this came out on September twenty seventh. Emotional labor is the unpaid job men still don't understand. And if I had a studio audience there, I would probably hear a lot of clapping. Um, that would be cool. I don't know if there would be a studio audience for a two-hour show about talking about how terrible the world is, but, you know, maybe there's an audience for that somewhere in the world. Okay, great. So, (laughs) for Mother's Day, I asked for one thing, a house cleaning service. 
bathrooms and floors specifically, windows if the extra expense was reasonable. The gift, for me, was not so much in the cleaning itself, but the fact that, for once, I would not be in charge of the household office work. I would not have to make the calls, get multiple quotes, research and vet each service, arrange payment, and schedule each and schedule the appointment. The real gift I wanted was to be relieved of the emotional labor of a single task that had been nagging at the back of my mind. The clean house would simply be a bonus. My husband waited for me to change my mind to an easier gift than house cleaning, something he could one-click order on Amazon. Disappointed by my unwavering desire, the day before Mother's Day, he called a single service, decided they were too expensive, and vowed to clean the bathrooms himself. He still gave me the choice, of course. He told me the high dollar amount of completing the cleaning services I requested, since I control the budget, and asked incredulously if I still wanted him to book it. What I wanted was for him to ask friends on Facebook for a recommendation, call four or five or five more services, do the emotional labor I would have done if the job had fallen to me. I wanted to hire out deep cl- I wanted to hire out deep cleaning for a while, especially since my freelance work had picked up considerably. The reason I hadn't done it yet was part guilt over not doing my housework and an even larger part of not wanting to deal with the work of hiring a service. I knew exactly how exhausting it was going to be, and that's why I asked my husband to do it as a gift. Dun, dun, dun. According to Dr. Michelle Ramsey, Associate Professor of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State Berks. That's a cute name, Penn State Berks. Uh, emotional labor is often conflated with problem solving. The gendered assumption is that men are the problem solvers because women are too emotional, she explains. But who is really solving the bulk of the world's problems at home and in the office? Yes. Ah, yes. As a household manager for my husband and three kids, I'm fairly certain I know the answer. I was gifted a necklace for Mother's Day while my husband stole away to deep clean the bathrooms, leaving me to care for our children as the rest of the house fell into total disarray. In his mind, he was doing the thing I most wanted, giving me sparkling bathrooms without having to do it myself, which is why he was frustrated when I ungratefully passed by not looking at his handiwork as I put away his shoes, shirt, and socks that had been left on the floor. I stumbled over the box of gift wrap he had pulled off a high shelf two days earlier and left in the center of our closet. In order to put it back, I had to get a kitchen chair and drag it into our closet so I could reach the shelf where it belonged. All you have to do is ask me to put it back, he said, watching me struggle. It was obvious that the box was in the way that it needed to be put back. It would have been easy for him to just reach up and put it away, but instead he had stepped around it, willfully ignoring it for two days. It was up to me to tell him that he should put away something he got out in the first place. That's the point, I said now in tears. I don't want to have to ask. The crying, the snapping at him, it all required damage control. I had to tell him how much I appreciated the bathroom cleaning, but perhaps he could do it another time, like when our kids were in bed. Then I tried to gingerly explain the concept of emotional labor, that I was the manager of the household, and that being the manager was a lot of thankless work, delegating work to other people, i.e. telling them to do something he should instinctively know to do, is exhausting. I totally hear that. I tried to tell him that I noticed the box at least 20 times over the past two days. He had noticed it only when I was heaving it onto the top shelf instead of asking for help. The whole explanation took a lot of restraint. Walking that fine line to keep the peace and not upset your partner is something women are taught to accept, 
as their duty from an early age. In general, we gender emotions in our society by continuing to reinforce the false idea that women are always naturally and biologically able to feel, express, and manage our emotions better than men, says Dr. Lisa Hubner, a sociologist of gender who both publishes and teaches on the subject of emotional labor at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. This is not to say that some individuals do not manage emotion better than others as part of their own individual personality, but... I would argue that we still have no firm evidence that this ability is biologically determined by sex. At the same time, and I would argue because it is not a natural difference, we find all ways of we find all kinds of ways in society to ensure that girls and women are responsible for emotions and then men get a pass. My husband is a good man and a good feminist ally. I I could tell as I walked him through it, but he was trying to grasp what I was getting at, that he was trying to grasp what I was getting at but he didn't. He said he'd try to do more cleaning around the house to help me out. He restated that all I ever needed to do was ask him for help, but therein lies the problem. I don't want to mis- micromanage housework. I want to partner with equal initiative. However, it's not as equal easy as telling him that. My husband, despite his good nature and admirable intentions, still responds to criticism in a very patriarchal way, forcing him to see emotional labor for the work it is, feels like a personal attack on his character. If I were to point out random emotional labor duties I carry out, reminding him of his family's birthdays, carrying in my head the entire school handbook and dietary guidelines for lunches, updating the calendar to include everyone's schedules, asking his mother to babysit the kids when we go out, keeping track of what food and household items we are running low on, tidying everyone's strewn out about belongings, the unending hell that is laundry, he would take it as me saying, look at everything I'm doing that you're not, you're a bad person for ignoring me and not pulling your weight. Bearing the brunt of all this emotional labor is a household, in a household is frustrating. It's a word that I hear most commonly when talking to friends about the subject, subject of all the behind the scenes work they do. It's frustrating to be saddled with all of the, all of these responsibilities, no one to acknowledge the work you're doing and no way to change it without major confrontation. What bothers me most about having any conversation around emotional labor is being seen as a nag, says Kelly Birch, a freelance journalist who works primarily from home. My partner feels irritated and defensive by the fact that I'm always pointing out what he's not doing. It shuts him down. I understand why it would be frustrating from his perspective, but I haven't figured out another way to make him aware of all the emotional and mental energy I'm spending to keep the house running. Even having a conversation about the imbalance of emotional labor becomes emotional labor. It gets to a point where I have to weigh the benefits of getting my husband to understand that my frustration against the compounded emotional labor of doing so in a way that won't end, uh, won't end in us fighting. Usually I let it slide, reminding myself that I'm lucky to have a partner who willingly complies to any task I decide to assign, assign to him. I know compared to many women, including female family members and friends, I have it so easy. My husband does a lot. He does dishes every night habitually. He often makes dinner. He will handle bedtime for the kids when I'm working. If I ask him to take on extra chores, he will without complaint. It feels greedy at times to want more from him. Yet, I find myself worrying about how the mental load bore almost exclusively by women translates into a deep gender inequality that is hard to shake on the personal level. It is difficult to model an egalitarian household for my children when it is clear that I am the household manager tasked with delegating any and all household responsibilities or taking on the full load myself. 
I can feel my sons and daughter watching our dynamic all the time, gleaning the roles for themselves as they grow older. When I brush my daughter's hair and elaborately braid it around the side of her, her scalp, I am doing the thing that is expected of me. When my husband brushes out tangles before bedtime, he needs his efforts noticed and congratulated, saying aloud in front of both me and her that it took him a whole 15 minutes. There are many small examples of where the work I normally do must be lauded when transferred to my husband. It seems like a small annoyance, but its significant looms larger. My son will boast of his clean room and any other jobs he has done. My daughter will quietly put her clothes in the hamper and get dressed each day without being asked. They are six and four, respectively. Unless I engage in this conversation on emotional labor and actively change the roles we inhabit, our children will do the same. They are already following in our footsteps. We are leading them toward the same imbalance. Children learn their communication patterns and gender roles. Uh, kids can recognize quote-unquote proper gender behavior by age three from a variety of people and institutions, but their parents are the ones that they, in theory, interact with the most, notes Dr. Ramsey. So if we want to change the expectations of emotional labor for the next generation, it has to start at home. For parents, this means making sure that one spouse does not do more of that type of labor than the other. Speaking in terms of how emotional labor is currently divided, girls will hopefully learn not to expect to have to do that labor, and boys will hopefully learn not to expect females to do that labor for them. Children watching parents share that emotional labor will be more likely to be, will be, more likely to be children who expect that labor to be shared in their own lives. I know it's not going to be easy for either of us to tackle the splitting of emotional labor, nor do I ever expect it to be completely equitable. I'll admit that I probably enjoy certain types of emotional labor far more than my husband, like planning our meals and vacations. Bit privileged? Okay. Whew. That's my own comment. Excuse me. I'm also more skilled at emotional labor on the whole time on the on the whole because I've had my entire life to practice it. But if we're lucky, he's got a whole lot of life left to hone his emotional labor skills and to change the course of our children's future. Our sons can still learn to carry their own weight. Our daughter can learn not to carry others. Cool. So this was an article in Bazaar. You can check that out if you go to bazaar.com. And yeah, I totally resonate with a lot of that. And for folks who are socialized, socialized as female, this idea of doing the emotional labor. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, marginal, like, folks in marginalized communities as well, this idea of being socialized to do the emotional labor for others. And how do we get past that? And I think this article touches upon, uh, granted that it's kind of coming from a heteronormative standpoint, but this idea also at least of how do we make sure that the next generation doesn't inhabit the, these uh, these roles as well. So I think that's uh, important to recognize. Cool. So grateful for the person who wrote it. Anyway, we are coming to the end of the show. It's almost 2 p.m. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. You can find us here at Mutiny Radio. We're on every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. There's also plenty of shows here at Mutiny Radio. If you go to mutinyradio.fm, we've got comedy, music, news, um other types of shows there's live performances here also if you would like a show there are spots available so check out mutinyradio.fm um there are open spots if you want to have a show of your own it's uncensored it's really cool so come here do your show it's great spread the word okay gonna gonna end the show right now thank you so much everyone for listening and we'll be back next week here's a song that was recommended called uh, vienna uh, called Level Up by uh, Vienna Tang. 
and uh, have a great week, everybody.